Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. And tonight, it's award night. Earlier this evening, the first tranche of the annual research honours from the Royal Society Te Aparangi were handed out at a smaller than usual event in Wellington. Thanks, COVID. There'll be further events in Christchurch and Auckland over the next fortnight. A huge congratulations to all the winners who span the humanities and the sciences. Tonight we'll meet three of the winners, and a couple more will feature on the show next week. This year is the first time that researchers from the humanities have been eligible for New Zealand's top research honour, the Rutherford Medal, and it's gone to someone whose work is firmly anchored in the arts, but who finds many connections with science. Brian Boyd from the University of Auckland has been described by the New York Times as an academic superstar. He works in the English department, and his broad range of work spans Shakespeare to Zeus, Nabokov to Popper, and even comics. I caught up with him on Skype, and we began by talking about his early research into the Russian-American writer Nabokov, who is most well known for his novel Lolita and for his love of butterflies. My first concentration was on Nabokov. I I wrote an essay on him in my first year at university. Um, he wasn't on the course, but we were allowed to do whatever we liked, and I'd already got very excited by Nabokov then. So I wrote an essay then that I tried to prepare for publication. I wrote an MA thesis on him, thought that was Nabokov out of my system, and started a PhD at Toronto on something else, but got bored and asked my supervisor, who was much more interested in Nabokov anyway, if I could go back to Nabokov. So I I wrote a PhD on him. His widow saw it and uh, thought it was the best thing written on him, so she invited me to sort out his archives for her. Then I I began working on a biography, and I have, for the last, uh, since about 93, uh, since I finished checking the French translation of the biography, I have tried to work on things other than Nabokov, but I think I have published or edited about another 16 books on him. What is it about his work that excites you and enthuses you so much? Many people think that he's the greatest writer of the 20th century, and and I do too, although I published my first work on, on Joyce. As Martin Amos says, probably Ulysses is the greatest novel of the 20th century, but Nabokov is the greatest writer in that he has such a wide range of masterpieces. And I think what is unique for, for me in Nabokov is that he tries to provide the reader with the same excitement of discovery that he felt um, in his work as a scientist. He was a, a world-class lepidopterist, a specialist in butterflies and moths. And uh, he just, sometimes he would, he would work 14 hours a day at the microscope and would, would write to friends just what, what things I'm discovering. And he tried to provide that for his readers. It's, it's a, you can read and discover new levels in each work 
and keep on discovering them. And there's one work of his, the one I, in fact, wrote my PhD on. Uh, I'm still discovering new things in it after, I don't know, 100 readings and <laughs> massive research on practically every line. It's something I can't, I, d I don't feel in any other writer um, to the same extent. Maybe maybe Shakespeare uh, is has the same element of inexhaustibility and Joyce, Finnegan's uh, uh, Wake is just too complex and boring for me, frankly, but Ulysses has, has some of that, but not the same uh, deliberate hiding of things under the reader's nose that if you suddenly make a connection between one part of the, the work and another, suddenly explodes in meanings that, that generates further consequences on, on other pages. So you're obviously completely inspired by the beauty and depth of his writing. Do you share anything of his passion for the beauty of moths and butterflies? Just a very amateur interest, no. Yeah, I, I, I have edited his writings on butterflies and I've worked with uh, lepidopterists in his area. And one of the fun parts of that was as, as people were rediscovering his work in the late 80s and realising how groundbreaking his work on South American butterflies was. They were discovering new species with new methods of, of catching. And Nabokov had never been to South America, but he did a major reclassification of butterflies in the Lycenidae. And one of the, the people who was most interested in, in this and was discovering lots of new species was, was trying to get Nabokovian names for the new species to, to honour the the groundbreaking work Nabokov had done. So that was fun, <laughs> devising the, the right Nabokovian name for a particular new butterfly. <laughs> Another person you've been very interested in is Karl Popper. I might have to get you to explain who Popper is. For some people, certainly at the end of his life, he was widely recognised, and he died in '94 as the foremost philosopher of the 20th century. He's not nearly as well known as, say, Russell or Wittgenstein, but uh, there are people who have worked on all three who think that Popper is much more fertile in his ideas. He's got two main claims to fame. One is his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, which is a, a critique of totalitarianism uh, and of the intellectual foundations of totalitarianism, going back for, to Plato and all the way to, to Marx. He wrote that while he was in New Zealand. He arrived in New Zealand in, at the beginning of 1937. He'd been raised as a Christian, but from from Jewish stock, and he knew that by Hitler's standards, he was he was a Jew. Uh, so he tried to escape Austria as soon as he could, and was here until the end of 1945. And uh, he wrote the Open Society and its enemies as his war war work. He said as as a contri contribution to the war effort. The historian Michael King calls it perhaps the most important book ever to come out of New Zealand, and I think I would agree. It uh, it inspired people who helped bring the, the Berlin Wall down. It inspired people who were marching in Tiananmen Square when, when the massacre there happened. He, he inspired George Soros, who had been one of his students, uh, to set up the Open Society Foundation to promote freedom and democracy and education in places where it was most ne needed. And now, of course, he's doing it in the US because it's so desperately needed there, and he's become one of the bugbears of the American right. That's one strand of Popper. And the other main strand is as a philosopher of science and an epistemologist, a theoretician of knowledge, the Nobel Prize-winning discoverer of ways of countering the immune system's resistance to grafting uh, Peter Medawar called 
Popper, incomparably the greatest philosopher of science who has ever lived. And one of the interesting things about that is the way his reputation has changed so much that by the early 80s, he was regarded partly through, I think, in a way, the skullduggery of some of his former pupils uh, as passé. And uh, many people, many philosophers, in fact, don't read Popper anymore, but they read the critiques of Popper, which actually have nothing to do with what Popper said, except that they, they, they attack positions that Popper himself attacked. They use Popper's own attacks on these positions as if they were attacking Popper's position. But people in, in many other disciplines, especially scientists of all kinds, uh, have been inspired by Popper. And it's, it's amazing, for instance, that Nobel laureates in every, every area of, of the sciences, in economics, in peace, and in literature have been inspired by Popper. But I, I still think that he's his reputation is not nearly as high as the quality of the material deserves. So I'm writing a biography that I think uh, be translated into lots of languages. I've, my work has been translated into 20 so far, but I think this will be translated into far more um, and, and will, I hope, re rehabilitate Popper and, and look at the ironies of his uh, changing reputation. But I, I, sh I should say that you know, the award I've got is not for my proper work. The award can only be for material that's already published. So that includes the Nabokov material and the work on I've done on literature, art and evolution. Yes, it's interesting how evolution keeps recurring as a theme in the things that you do. Yes, yes. yes Nabokov was interested in evolution. Popper was very, very interested in it. He was he's regarded as one of the founders of evolutionary epistemology. In other words, uh, how, how do we explain what we know in terms of the fact that we are evolved creatures who, who have sense organs and brains that are related to much simpler forms of life. What does that do to our understanding of what we know? And it was partly because of those dual interests in evolution in, in Nabokov and Popper that I really got launched into working on literature and evolution. There were other strands too. I, I started the Popper project in 1996 and uh, got diverted in 99, really, and worked on literature and evolution for another 10 years. And I still do work on that, but it's not. I, I try to focus on Popper all the time, uh, but the, the Nabokov and the literature and, and, and art and evolution things do get in the way. You put some thought into that idea of, of us as a storytelling species and how our need to tell stories is informed by, in a sense, our evolution and biology as well. Yes, uh, look at all the the kinds of ways our minds have evolved to be able to understand events as and, and put them into narrative form. And also the way understanding one another is so crucial for a, a species that is so highly, so ultra-social, as, as some biologists call it. The better we understand one another, the better we can cooperate and compete with one another. And storytelling offers uh, a way of of understanding others better, not, not only the experience that you've encountered directly that you've been able to observe and analyse, but reports of others. And that includes both uh, true stories, gossip, say, or history, but also invented stories, fiction, uh, which which is not limited by what, ha what happens to have happened, but 
is interested or can explore the, the, the vast space of the possible and can also organize events in, in ways to maximize attention and retention. Uh, so it, fiction has, I think we have, we've evolved both to to be compelled to to engage in true, true storytelling and in, in gossip and, and legend and, and history, but also to be engaged in, in fiction. I, I relate fiction to play, and play is something that exists through so many different animal species. Uh, it's a way of trying out things in, in safe spaces that you might need in crisis situations. And our compulsion for narrative as play for fiction is important in helping prepare us for situations we might not have encountered before. Thanks, Brian. Brian Boyd is Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Auckland and winner of New Zealand's top research honour, the 2020 Rutherford Medal. By the way, there are longer versions of all of tonight's winners' interviews on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Now for another winner. Te Pua Waitanga Award recognises research that has made a distinctive contribution to Te Ao Māori and Indigenous knowledge. It's been awarded to Maria Barge from Victoria University of Wellington. Her work spans political economy and the environment. Those two threads, political economy and the environment, and of course they interconnect, I guess, and over the years one of the things I've become more conscious of is just how uh, interconnected they are and the kinds of influences that we have or incentives we have from the political and economic side and how they impact on the environment. So, um, you know, I've had these different strands, but more and more in the last few years they've kind of come together and I've been looking at the ways in which decision makers or the powerful, if you like, can be influenced to try and support having a a slightly more sustainable uh, future for us all. And doing this by putting a strong Māori perspective on things. Yes, that's right. I'm based in Māori studies and one of the things I think is pretty clear is when we're looking around for solutions, actually there are all sorts of ideas and solutions um, already embedded in mātauranga Māori but also tikanga Māori, the ways that Māori see the world and and some of the kind of core principles that guide a lot of activities in in Māori communities. The general science community seems to be much more strongly engaging with the idea that Mataranga Māori has strong and valid contributions to make to what has been a very Pākehā-centric science until now. Yeah, that's right. I think that's because there are a whole lot of Māori scientists, like my colleague Ocean Mercia, for example, who have uh, trained in in two different science arts, if you like, um, in her case, physics and mātauranga Māori, and have have worked pretty hard at that interface to show both sides, really, that there are insights and principles that that there, you know, that are common to both, um, and different kind of views and perspectives that can take us a few steps forward, um, particularly when thinking about sustainability and adapting to climate change. You have a particular interest in climate change. What work have you been doing in that area? 
Well, I guess some of that was inspired from analysing power dynamics and thinking, you know, how how do we actually go about trying to influence decision makers at the different levels that we have of, of government here in Aotearoa, but also people, communities, you know, and individuals? What are some of those kind of blocks that people have? What are the, the motivators? Because, of course, climate change is such a huge issue for us, probably the biggest, if you like, when you're thinking of survival of the planet. And uh, so I I was looking at these different issues and thinking about how to shift people. And some of the international research is around a just transition. You know, it's all good to have a kind of ideal place for us to head to in terms of a low carbon economy. But how do we get there along the way? So one of the things I was looking at was that transition point and thinking about it in terms of tikanga Māori, in terms of upholding the principles of the treaty and also thinking about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as kind of guides, really, for this transition point to a low-carbon economy. And um, so for me, those tika transition principles are really key. And when I looked at what's happening in a whole lot of Māori communities, they're all really exciting um, projects underway where on the ground you may think they're just kind of very localised projects to get rid of, um, you know, possums or catfish or whatever. Um, But those projects around biodiversity, uh, you know, are intimately connected to adaptation um, and, in fact, mitigation um, to climate change. So for me, it's bringing some of those elements together and showing them to decision makers to encourage them to see that actually these are huge opportunities for us to live in better ways and more sustainable ways. And Māori communities have already you know, got a head start in some regards on uh, being involved in these kinds of um, activities. So I gather that you, this Tika Transition Toolbox that you've developed, um, as a result of that, you're on the Greater Wellington Regional Council Climate Committee. So there you're trying to come up with the actual practical things for Wellington to do? Yes, well, I'm, I'm the appointed member on there. So, you know, other councillors fit in with some of the broader Uh, climate action plans and activities in the kind of greater Wellington region and and in cooperation with a number of other, um, the district and city councils um, in the area. So yeah, there's a number of proposals there. One is around a low carbon fund, um, which has got going. Um, And so that's certainly the council looking inwards uh, to see what they can do a little bit better and then trying to inspire change in the broader community as well. Tell me about some of the things you're involved in with the Māori resource management economy. I know you do some work for your hapu. Yes, so I'm from Horohoro, which is just out of Rotorua, and um, got involved. <laughs> Despite my background being in political science and international relations, you know, I went to the hapu and said, what can I do? And they had some uh, predator-free projects underway and uh, and some pests to get rid of. So I uh, drew on, on some of my um, training there in the bush and expanded on it, looking at what could be some pest control options. And that's where you can see, you know, some of the kind of interconnections between biodiversity projects like that, which we're trying to bring back the bush and the birds um, to our Horohoro mountain. And then thinking, you know, well, actually, if there's some of the smaller trees that currently are being eaten uh, and browsed by the deer and, and possums, if we can if we can allow those to grow to maturity, then in fact, we're, you know, creating a greater carbon sink. And we know that climate change is going to have a 
impact, of course, on our already declining biodiversity. So it's kind of working backwards to try and um, mitigate some of that through these very local projects of just getting rid of some of the, the possums and deer. Are you already beginning to see changes on the Horohoro mountain? Some of our hapu members claim they can hear more birds now than before, but I think with possums and rats, um, and in our case we also have wallabies rambling uh, about, it's a case of kind of keeping on, on top of it and trying to get those numbers really as far down to that the kind of 5% level that people talk about as equating to a level where you know the birds and bush can kind of continue to flourish even with the presence of of a number of pests. And especially now we've had the the COVID lockdown, I think there are a whole lot of groups who are suddenly a little bit more attentive (laughs) to sustainability and food security and regenerative economies and things like that. So there's actually a proliferation of groups who are enthused and are connecting up. And so Toha, for example, an environmental impact investing um, group, you know, doing these sorts of things and a a number of others where there are private businesses um, trying to invest in uh, biodiversity projects, um, native forests, um, as part of a kind of climate change effort. Thanks, Maria. Maria Barge is in Te Kawa a Maui, the School of Māori Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, and she is the winner of the 2020 Te Pua Waitanga Award. Our third winner tonight has won the Hamilton Award, given by the Royal Society Te Aparangi for Early Career Research Excellence in Science. This year, it's gone to Nick Albert from Plant and Food Research for his work into colour and plants. When I caught up with Nick on Skype, I reminded him of our previous meeting, six years ago, and a glass house full of mutant petunias. These mutant petunias are actually not so scary. They have variations in the genes that control flower colour. So these mutants might have had uh, white or pale flower colour patterns, uh, the types of things you might see in your garden centre. I was using them because they're really interesting um, tools to understand how genes work together to turn on the pathway that actually makes the pigments, the purple colours that we see. Why do plants even have colour? The colours themselves, the red pigments, evolved quite early in land plants and it's often associated with stress. It sort of behaves a bit like a sunscreen against too much intense uh, light. So it actually just acts a bit like a sunshade. And I guess common examples are things like autumn colour, when we start seeing those red colours in autumn. The plants are trying to recover all the nitrogen in their leaves as they um, are going to drop off those leaves. But as they're doing it, they are prone to the light stress. And so you usually see that on the sunny uh, morning side, the side of the tree that gets the morning light when it's cold tend to have the deepest colours. And so that's one reason why plants might have these pigments. So We often see a blush of colour in their stems or in their leaves. But they also are really important in our fruit and flower crops because they act as an advertising signal to animals, including us, to say, eat me, I'm ready, or come and pollinate me. So reds and purples, what pigment causes that colour? So it's a pigment called anthocyanin. And anthocyanins are the most abundant uh, type of pigment that ranges in colour from sort of an orangey red like 
and pelargoniums. All of your main red colours, um, so think of red roses, right through to purples and blues. And we even have some really amazing blues, things like cornflower, which are really quite complicated, but they're still anthocyanin pigments. And you were looking at the genes that cause these colours. Tell me about that. So people have been interested in pigments for a really long time. I mean, Darwin, uh, Mendel, these sorts of variations in the genes that affect colour allow you to understand how genes are inherited, for example. But we're really interested in how does one cell get the message that says you need to become coloured now versus the cell next to it that doesn't have that same message. And if you think of something, a flower with a really, really complicated colour pattern, um, something with stripes or spots, so something like an orchid, maybe even an orchid that looks uh, maybe like an another organism. Sometimes we have flowers that look like moths or quite intricate colour patterns. They've, it's all genetically controlled. And that's really interesting to me. Um, how do you get these ordered patterns out of essentially chaos? You've all got the same genes, but the messages are different. What number of genes are we talking about? To actually make the pigments, maybe around 20 or so that need to be turned on at the right time and place. And if you don't get them all turned on, then you don't get colour. But then there are other genes, the ones that I am working on, and they actually act like a switch, and they turn that whole pathway on uh, at the right time. And so there might be, I don't know, maybe another 10 genes that might be involved in that. We're still discovering more. But to go back to your two cells side by side, they've both got the same 20 genes, but in one case they've been turned on, in the other case they're turned off? That's right. And we're still understanding some parts of that. Spots are really, really interesting to me. If you think of something like a foxglove, you've got a, a pale sort of purpley pink um, base colour, and then inside uh, there are some really, really dark spots. They're very, very pigmented with anthocyanin. But often around those spots it can be white, kind of emphasising um, that, that colour. And in that case, we think that the spot cells are actually inhibiting colour in the cells adjacent as well. But that's, that's an area that's still not well understood. It sounds like an exciting area to be working in, lots of discoveries. Lots of discoveries, lots of surprises. I think what I, I find really engaging about it is when something has worked in an experiment you can usually see it. <laughs> That's quite rare in biology. Usually it's a colourless liquid in a very small tube. Of course, whereas you get a beautiful flower at the end of it. That's right, yeah. I've actually been working with someone new in the lab uh, on a, a new colour project and they've, they're absolutely thrilled because they know their work has been successful because they're producing really colourful plants. So does this have implications for things other than nice coloured flowers? Is this something you could apply to something like fruits? Absolutely. We're drawn to colour. It's um, something that is quite important to us and we make decisions when we're in the grocery store or selecting a uh, fruit or vegetable uh, from the garden. Colour is really important and we're also interested not only because we like the visual appeal of something, but these pigments are also really good for human health. Um, there are lots of compounds that plants make uh, that contribute to 
human health benefits. Uh, and anthocyanins are one of these uh, groups of compounds. So we want to make sure that our crops that we keep growing, that they've got really good levels of these. And actually that's getting harder. For example, in apples, high temperature actually inhibits coloration. And so you could have this wonderful crop and it's looking like it's going to be fantastic. And then if a heat wave comes through, you can actually reduce substantially the amount of anthocyanin. The crop doesn't look as appealing. No one wants to buy it. And actually it has less of these health-promoting compounds in it. So we're trying to actually breed apple cultivars. Um, this is work, and the, I'm not directly involved in this, but work at Plant and Food is, is looking at this very issue. And looking at it at a genetic level? That's right. The idea is to breed new cultivars that might be more resistant to higher temperatures. And then if we find plants that are resistant, then we can start working out what are the, what are the genetic changes that allow that to happen. And that's actually really important because once we understand how that might be working in one crop, we might be able to look for similar things in other crops that face the same problem. So this is a way of future-proofing our horticultural industry. Absolutely, and it is really important. Climate change is coming, and breeding takes a long time. So we need kind of all the tools we can use to, to help fast-track this. And, and, and that can be identifying the causative genes. And once you know that, you can actually select for it. You just know which plants to take through to the next generation, just through traditional breeding. Any idea where the work's going to take you to next? We're currently working on understanding why anthocyanins are often located mainly in the skin of fruit. In this case, we're interested in blueberries versus their wild relative bilberries. People who've travelled around Europe uh, might know the, the bilberry. It's sort of a wild blueberry that's really intensely purple. And that's, that's a really interesting example for us to understand what's different between those two really closely related crops. So in a few years' time, if we end up with blueberries that have purple flesh as well as purple skin, we might have you to thank for it. Hopefully, that would be a fantastic outcome. It's certainly what we'd like to work towards. Thanks, Nick. Nick Albert is at Plant and Food Research, and he is winner of the 2020 Hamilton Award for Early Career Research Excellence. And you can find a link to my earlier interview with Nick about those mutant petunias, along with longer versions of all of tonight's interviews on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Don't forget, we'll have more winners on the show next week, including David Tippany leach He'll be talking about saving babies' lives with a wahakura, a woven flax cradle for safe, shared sleeping. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori ki reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance. This is Our Changing World. And our last word tonight goes to some Dunedin students who have collaborated on an exhibition at Otago Museum called Climate Change, Striking a Balance. I stand here on the edge of this beach, this piece of land that has been passed down from sun to sun. And as the sea dances past my feet, I wonder... Will this ocean that has fed our forefathers be the same that devours the coconuts and the trees? Oh, I wonder. I stand here on this land that has fed the mothers of my mothers 
and as my feet sink into the rich soil of the land, I wonder, will the food of my ancestors vanish along with the shells? Will the identity of my people disappear into the blue? Will this way of life sink past the raging seas? Oh, I wonder. I stand here, wearing the traditional clothing of my foremothers, and as I wear days-long work of aunties and cousins, I wonder. Will the ocean also swallow our precious pandanus plants? Will the sacred knowledge of weaving fade away? Will the colors of my clan turn into the thousand shades of blue? Oh, I wonder. The ocean used to bring us emerald seaweed and seashells, but now she brings along souvenirs from other countries. She brings bits and pieces of plastic. This is now the new beauty of our land, not native to the island, thus destroying the growth of the plants, inhabiting the white pristine beaches, the lush green forests, the eerie mangroves. Is this really the new beauty of my island? Oh, I wonder and wonder and wonder. I stand here, knowing that today has come, but the future's not promised. To my sisters in the east, I am with you. To my sisters in the west, I see you. And as the sea continues to rise into your martial islands, my Belau, our Micronesia, our Pacifica, remember, it is 1.5 to stay alive. Climate change is the biggest environmental challenge of our time. The youth of Otago wants to show you the impact through our eyes. At our new exhibition at Otago Museum, Climate Change, Striking a Balance. Learn about the science of climate change and the inequality of emissions and impacts through art, poetry and incredible interviews with youth across the Pacific. Hi, I'm Grace. Um, I am one of the students who is participated and helped in creating this exhibition. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jeremy, and I'm also one of the students who participated in helping to make the exhibition. Uh, kia ora, ko Casey Tokunga. I'm also a student who helped make this exhibition. Climate change equality is so important to me, as it should be for everyone, because I think that it is everyone's responsibility to act to gain equality for everyone, because we are all connected and we all we all have to live on the same earth. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I th- I feel that it's my responsibility to fight for climate equality now because. Like, if it's not me, who will fight? And it's so crucial that we do it now. Living in Maori, my name is Charlotte Daisy Kamerira. Um, my father's name is um, Kamerira Son. My mother's name is Mary Tim. I am 20 years old and I come from the islands of. What was the first time that you felt passionate about climate change? Like, I've always been curious about climate change ever since I was little, but then I was passionate about it when I, like, come to learn about it more in, like, high school, like, year nine, because that's when they taught us more about climate change. And, like, because we all know, like, the effects we've been told from, like, in primary level, and because we can see it because we live like close by to the sea. Level rise, the 
coastal erosion and the increase in temperature yeah causing like droughts and like no rain for like many months one time it was about like almost two years the communities that are like severely affected now in Kiribati are like the outer islands like because they depend more on copra to earn their income and like for food and because of like you know that the coastal erosions are like um the increase in temperature that like the water salinity is like very high and like it make their crops die and like most of the trees are like affected also by the, the high tide and it causes like all the plants to die so they are like suffering to get their income and their food as well and also communities like all around Kiribati that are living in coastal areas because they are forced to like move inwards into the the island because when like the high tide comes it like floods their homes. What would you like to say to the world about climate change? We all know that climate change is real but because they are not suffering from the impacts they don't take it very seriously. We are like suffering and fearing for like that one day our country would disappear it's a struggle every day for us i just hope like the everybody like know more about our story yeah well it's obviously super important to realize that it's actually not those small countries or the yeah well it's us bigger countries that are actually Mm -hmm. producing all this waste and like making the massive effect on climate change but then we're not really getting too many consequences at the moment and it's just more the smaller countries that are struggling because of it so yeah i think it's just really important that we realize that and realize that there are countries that are having consequences now yeah and just yeah just because it's we're not having them yet it doesn't mean that other countries aren't one thing that i was noticing as well was like or it made me really think about how much people's emotional and like spiritual well-being as well as being affected by climate change different cultures and aspects of that um and when you know your home your homeland is being threatened you know and that's completely out of your control that uncertainty and that worry must be awful like for your mental health and for the health of the community and things like that because i mean we've even, for example, like this year, like with COVID and all that, like the amount of uncertainty has make, made everything just feel awful because we don't like uncertainty. So I think with your home and your life and your community being threatened by climate change, especially in those smaller Pacific Island nations, which um, I can't say for sure, but I'm assuming really value like community-based yeah. activities and things um, for support, that just must be awful. Mm. Like, really awful. I think the damage that has already been done is not reversible, but what we can do is that we can stop the climate from warming to, I think it's 1.5 degrees, which is, like, the end point. That's where we need to stop for us to have a safe planet. But I think that the damage done to, you know, smaller Pacific Island nations, it probably can't be... It's not reversible people can cut down on emissions and stuff but it's more effective like when you're in a big group to like protest and just try and enlighten your government and stuff and try and make them act because obviously with the government acting it's a lot easier to change your country's you know actions on climate change so yeah but then also 
individually it's just important that you know you don't just protest but you also like compost or like mm. you know think about your waste and just like reduce your waste by thinking better and reuse anything that you produce so yeah I think larger countries I think we need to stop blaming or like blaming other people for climate change inequality and sort of take responsibility and recognize that we we have created this problem because I think at the moment there's a lot of um, ignoring climate change as an issue which is just ridiculous to me I think that's absolutely ridiculous but also um, that sort of oh well it's not my problem like oh it's not my problem and I think what larger companies need to be doing is taking responsibility and going okay just because I personally am not being affected by it on a daily basis doesn't mean that I haven't contributed the most because often those people have contributed the most which again is what our whole exhibition is about. Big thanks to Grace, Casey and Jeremy and to Otago Museum's Claire Concannon. Thanks too to Otago Access Radio for that audio, which is part of a longer ORFM feature. It's a great listen and you can find a link on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. The exhibition, Climate Change, Striking a Balance, has been at Otago Museum and while it is taking a short two-week break, it will be back there again from the 16th of November. Do check it out if you're in Dunedin. Before I go, here's a fascinating postscript to last week's story about Niwa putting deep-sea corals to the test. One of the corals being tested produced babies on the last day of the experiment. Sharp-eyed Jennifer Beaumont spotted tiny orange larvae that spent a few days floating in the water column before some of them settled and attached themselves to solid surfaces in the tank. Now, there are a few world firsts here. Most deep-sea coral larvae take months, not days, to settle out. This is the first time anyone has ever seen larvae of this species, Goniocorilla damosa, and Di Tracy says it's changed our understanding of how this species breeds. It's not a broadcast spawner, releasing masses of tiny eggs and sperm into the water column, it has to be a brooding species, meaning it broods smaller numbers of larger larvae. Fascinating serendipitous science. I've added photos of the deep sea coral babies to the coral story, which you can find at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us as a podcast on your favourite podcast app and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.